we all work for each other, i.e. I work for our employees, they don't work for me. Because one of the things that I think has led us to be able to grow such an incredible team is I lead by example. I have no problem staying up all night. I have no problem doing whatever it takes. And I think showing that to your team that I'm not on top of you. I'm not better than you. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem and the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital. And on today's show, we have Mo Parikh. Mo is the co-founder and CEO of Bandwango, a cloud-based software platform that helps connect communities to local businesses enabling a very unique e-commerce solution to create virtual experience passes. Mo is here today to talk with us about his founder story, what got him started, and where things are headed. Hi, Mo. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Les. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. And the fact that I'm the first founder is extra special to me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we're we're excited excited to have you for sure. So, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your family and and just how you know how you grew up and how you got into the startup world? Yeah, absolutely. So I am born and raised in New Jersey. My mom and dad moved to the U.S. in 1975 from India. Most of my life in New Jersey up until the age of 25. And you know, growing up, it was sort of this mix of a traditional Indian households with Indian cultures and values, and I was also around. My mother and father, who definitely had no issue getting their hands dirty. I remember growing up every weekend, and it was always about the next home improvement project. My dad and I were always solving problems and installing crown molding, and my parents were always outside tending the garden. So I really grew up with a very hands-on lifestyle. My dad was an engineer by trade, a mechanical engineer. And my mom worked at the hospital in the radiology department. So growing up, you know, I was always a mix of engineering and sort of medicine, which really drove my decision when I graduated high school in 2000 to attend Rutgers and study biomedical engineering as my undergraduate degree. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Mo. Biomedical engineering? But you're a tech founder. Who would have thought? Something happened. (laughs) A lot happened. You know, so... In high school, I was um, always sort of exposed to engineering. I sort of excelled at physics and calculus. I always also had an affinity towards the medical arena. So when it came time to decide where to go to college, I said, huh, biomedical engineering sort of marries the best of both of these worlds of combining problem solving, which is something I've always loved, and working with my hands with the medical side of it. I don't know if that was simply my my Indian upbringing that made me interested in medical, but something that really caused me to go to Rutgers and get an undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering. I'd say my first sort of startup experience slash primary inspiration to where I am today really came after I graduated from Rutgers in 2004. I joined a company, a startup called Refine Technology, and they were building bioprocessing equipment for the pharmaceutical space, for the large-scale manufacture and growth of, of cells. And so I really cut my teeth in the startup world by joining that company fresh out of college and really doing everything. I would go on implementation calls with our customers. I would write software code. 
I would run the CNC machine. I'd travel on sales calls with the founder. And that initial sort of you know, experience to this wide array of what it takes to run a business, I think initially really got me excited. That combined with some of my really close friends growing up through college, I worked for an entertainment company. My good friend ran two companies. So I was always sort of around this business um, side of, of, of you know, making money and such throughout that part of my life. And that really led me to then say in 2007, maybe I should go get a PhD because that's it seemed what people did, you know, when they sort of wanted to take their biotech career to the next level. So that's what I did. I applied to a handful of programs and I got accepted in 2007 to the PhD program in bioengineering at the University of Utah. And that makes sense because uh, Bandwango is a drug development company. Absolutely. So. Travel is a drug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So so from, wow. So PhD, what was, what was it like being in a PhD program? As somebody that like likes to get their hands dirty, likes to tinker, likes to wear all the different hats, like how did you... Was it fulfilling or was it was it challenging to be in a... It was sort of a combination of both. You know, the way that PhD programs are typically structured is these are funded programs, especially in the life sciences. So I was paid a stipend to be there. They paid my salary. So it was really like a full-ride scholarship. What I found happened when I, when I started in the lab there is from the get-go, a lot of my funding came from teaching. So I was a teaching assistant for a number of years. And what sort of transcribed over the next few years is I um, had a hand in directly building a variety of entrepreneurship training programs. So we built a program called BioWorld for undergraduate students. We created a program called BioDesign for biomedical engineering students. We created a program called BioInnovate for graduate students and medical students. And all of these were around the idea of how can we train students to take ideas from university clinicians and prototype medical devices translate them to the FDA QSR, and actually start companies. So I had a really, really unique PhD uh, career that a lot of people don't have. Typically, when you attend a PhD program, it's all about research. Because purely a lot of it, like the source of my funding came from teaching, I was sort of forced into this world of teaching entrepreneurship when I've never really done it personally But over the course of those four or five years, I just learned a tremendous amount around not only how to understand user needs, how to get your hands dirty and prototype things and test things, how to translate things through regulatory frameworks, but then how to write business plans and start companies. And I think through those seven years really shaped my passion for entrepreneurship. And ultimately what happened, you know, sort of the collapse of Rome, let's call it, what happened was I just sort of realized that I don't really enjoy research, that it was too slow for me, even though it enabled me to get my hands dirty and build things, you know, waiting six weeks for a cell culture experiment to finish was just a tough thing for me to do. And so after seven years, while I was writing a lot of my dissertation, I made the really tough decision to quit that program and combine the passion that I now had for entrepreneurship, travel, although initially the, the company was based on saving money on lift tickets at ski resorts. <laughs> of course, a natural segue. Well, for our listeners out there that don't know you and what, what gets you excited, maybe uh, can you tell us a little bit about that origin? Like, why were you so excited about lift tickets and discounts and things? 
Yeah, it was a combination of things. I've been snowboarding since I was 12. You know, one of the big drivers, aside from the fact that the University of Utah was the only school I got into, but one of the big drivers to move to Utah was snowboarding. I just had a big passion for it. And, you know, in graduate school, making 22 to 26 grand a year doesn't really leave much margin for uh, living life. And I just saw over the years, the cost of lift tickets go up and up and up. I saw that, you know, there were companies in the mountain travel industry that had made strides, but I saw just a bit of a gap in that market. And honestly, the initial problem I was trying to solve was a personal problem, which is I want to snowboard more. I have no money. And so how do I figure out how to do that for cheaper? That's honestly what the initial genesis was to be able to do this. And for the first few years, it was really a side hobby as I was in graduate school until I stumbled upon this massive opportunity and unmet need that exists in the travel and tourism space. Amazing. I mean, it's it's so it's so often this like common thread with great founding stories. It's like the origin story, solving this personal problem, this personal need that you just obsess about, right? I mean, yeah. I, that's that's definitely uh, in a very in a very positive way your personality like you obsess about solving problems and i do absolutely i i i've been known to stay up all night until the problem is solved and i've just always have done that but that's really what drives me is you know solving complex problems is just something i think i have an affinity towards i think i'm pretty good at it and it's really just been this journey as we uncovered this huge opportunity in travel and tourism of what ultimately ended up being a really complex problem to solve that we spent the next handful of years really sweating it out to understand the nuts and bolts of it. So while, while you were waiting for your cell cultures to grow, uh, you started, you, you decided to go after this problem. What, what ended up happening? Can you tell us a little bit about the story of like trying to solve this specific ski pass problem? It, yeah. Did it, did it work out? Did you, did you f- figure it out? We didn't spend enough time in the industry to really see if it would have worked out for a handful of reasons, but just quickly in terms of how this initial idea from my head of Bandwango.com, which I registered in May of 2007 at 11 something PM, I still have the receipt that we show at our new employee training. The genesis from you know 2007 was 2011. I was renting a house in a neighborhood called Sugar House here in Salt Lake. And I randomly met my neighbor across the fence, literally across the fence. And I started telling him what I'm doing, you know, the PhD program. I love to snowboard. I found out that he owned a digital marketing agency and it was a very avid skier. And so I told him about this idea I initially had, which was the Bandwango concept was originally around, can we leverage group sales offices in industries that have figured out how to discount that volume? Can we leverage those into social networks? And Bandwango originally came from Bandwagon, hopping to save, you know, 11 something PM, May 7th that year, I was probably in New York City, you know, having a little bit too much fun, but the name just popped in my head. And I told him about this idea. And he was like, huh, it's a great idea. Why don't we maybe throw some money in the pot? And we each threw five grand in the pot. And we had uh, a dev shop that he worked with through his digital marketing agency in Argentina, start building it. So from 2011 to 2014, this was very much on the side, trying to go to these trade shows, trying to learn as much while I was still bouncing the PhD, and just trying to really align what we were trying to do with a product market fit that we would later find out in 2014 that there was a much larger opportunity in front of us. But we wouldn't have found that out unless we started in the mountain travel space because 
I met the vice president of marketing at Visit Salt Lake at the Mountain Travel Symposium in 2014 when we were still going down this ski lift ticket road. Wow. I mean, so so the, this across the fence, I mean, it reminds me of like home improvement. And yeah. <laughs> Tim the tool man. But like that was the seat. That was really the, the $5,000 of seed funding or 10,000, I guess, 5,000 yep. from each east side yep. of the fence. And you, and you pretty much bootstrapped from 20, 2007 to 2011 on just that. So, so 2007 is when I registered the domain, but I didn't do anything with oh, it until okay. 2011. From Got 2011 it. to 2014, there was that money put in. And then myself and the founders put a little bit more cash in as we went by. And then in 2014, when we really identified this need from a tourism bureau, um, two things happened that year. First, I raised money from friends and family to hire one full-time developer. That's Trevor. He is now our CTO and who is somebody I consider a dear friend to me. And secondly, I got our first customer to actually pay money for <laughs> developing a solution that they very much needed. And so those three those years- Those are big was, milestones. They were, they, were, they, were, they yeah. were really big milestones. And for me, that was the first point in time where I said, okay, there's something here because I have convinced- 18 of my closest friends and family to write checks to me, which added some pressure. But then more importantly, I felt like that was my first taste of product market fit because I got our first customer to pay us more than anybody had ever paid us because they said, we want this so badly that we'll pay you for it and you can still own it all, which is really that aha moment. And so I think those three years from 2011 to 2014, I personally don't think we'd be where we're at today if it weren't for me just taking my time and working in this industry and listening and not trying to propose necessary a solution versus go and listen and understand what the real needs are. Um, that's what we taught at the University of Utah. We taught first and foremost, it's around user needs and understanding what the user's problems are. And I really applied a lot of that to those three years that got me to a level of comfort to know, okay, I've de-risked it in my head to a point where I feel okay with raising money from my close friends and family. Would you say that that, that skill that you just described is sort of your, your superpower, that sort of listening and understanding customer need, or is it, is it deeper than that? I think that's one of my sort of what we might call superpowers, but really what I think I am good at is I think I'm good at being persistent, and I think I'm just conditioned to be okay with failure with the humility of understanding that most of the time I'm not going to be right, but if I listen and I continuously improve, that we will get it right. Because, you know, I think anyone can work really hard. What's hard to do in entrepreneurship is accepting that it's not going to work most of the time. And a lot of it is just pure grit and just punching through these ceilings that I think I've been able to do and sort of sustain because I believed in this enough for long enough that I mm -hmm. kept pushing, I kept pushing, I did whatever needed to be done down to teaching myself the fundamentals of Google Tag Manager, Google Analytics, I'd never even heard about it, just so I can implement it for a customer is sort of what it took, I think, to get me to today because part of our capital efficiency has just been like putting the sweat in and just dealing with the pain to do things when you don't have the resources to do it. And I also think, you know, being careful on how and when we raised money was really helpful by not overcapitalizing too early, it forced me to be scrappy. It forced me to find the angles 
It forced me to personally go close the first 50 customers and personally go implement the first 50 customers before I hired any service people. Did that, did that create any challenges for you? I mean, it, it's, it seems like it would, it would be all too easy to just have those services people and, and, and be burning cash prior to actually needing them. But you, you kind of stepped into yeah. the need. It didn't cause any challenges in terms of my sort of what I'll call work emotional life. Personally, it did. You know, I was working a tremendous amount of hours at that point. You know, Brianna, my girlfriend, I love, we've been together. She's been with me since the beginning. And she's seen the early days of, and I still work a ton, but early days, this was nothing compared to back then because it would be get up at six, work until eight, eat some food, get on the computer at nine, work until 5 a.m. Because there was just, you know, the second I made a promise to customers to deliver something, we had to keep that promise. And with very few people, like one developer and me doing most of the service work, it was very hard. But the only way we we're going to crack this complex problem was by manually doing it. You can't build software around things that you don't fully understand. For sure. I, and I'll tell you, I think it's one thing that uh, since since we've gotten to know each other, I've really admired at the level of detail and diligence you not only have on your customer, but also on your company and how it's operating and how you're, how you're constantly refining and turning knobs. Can you share with with our listeners a little bit about your approach there and just how you yeah. how you run and, and how you've scaled your business? Yeah. First and foremost, it's the realization that I don't know everything. So for me, it has all the time been around surround myself with people that are smarter than me and learn from them. There's a lot of people that I owe where we're at today too, because I didn't have a lot of this expertise. So the first is sort of the humility of, hey, I'm not an expert. I want to hear perspective. I'm going to learn sort of over time. And then the second thing is the mentality of don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves. Like no job is under me. You know, I, one of our core values of this business is we all work for each other. I.e., I work for our employees. They don't work for me because one of the things that I think has led us to be able to grow such an incredible team is I lead by example. I have no problem staying up all night. I have no problem doing whatever it takes and I think showing that to your team that hey, I'm not on top of you. I'm not better than you. We're in this together and I will equally roll up my sleeves with you and be a resource for you, I think has really helped. And then as we've scaled is really laying out these company values so that we're hiring and firing by them, that these are our, our guiding light that the whole company stands by. And it only works if I've done it and I've lived it. And that's, I think, some of the things that's really helped me get to where I am today is just being open to continuously learn and realizing I don't know everything and I need to surround myself with people because this is my first company. And then secondly, inspire people around you by ensuring that they understand that I work for you. I'm here to help you and support you wherever you want to go. And we've just built an amazing team because of that. For sure. I mean, and the self-awareness is, 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 is definitely, I think, something that most people would be surprised to know if they interact with you for, you know, five minutes that this is your first company. I mean, but I think a lot of that goes back to your self-awareness and humility. So definitely an important trait for, for successful founders. What, what about the moment, you, you know, we talked about the aha moment a little bit, but what about the moment when it really started to, you know, when you really started to hit kind of, kind of the scale, kind of growth potential, capital, all, all, when everything started to, you know, kind of march in the same direction. Can you tell us, talk us through that? Like when it happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the current 
sort of version of our software was launched officially in May of 2015. That was with one single customer, Visit Salt Lake, and we essentially rebuilt our platform to accommodate program they had in existence for 10 years prior, but we were largely modernizing it. The next handful of years, what I was trying to do in this travel and tourism industry, I think was such a significant departure from what they've currently done. You know, in the the tourism bureau space has, has largely traditionally been focused on inspirational style marketing to drive visitors and business travelers into these cities, but not as much sort of bottom funnel owning that whole journey. And so I literally spent the first two years, three years close to actually, going to every trade show in this industry I could see, talking to as many people as I can talk to, and doing the hard work of signing the next one and the next one. I think in 2015, I think we signed three customers. In 2016, I think the total was up to 10 to 13. 2017, it was in the 20s. 2018, it was in the 30s. And so it really was a slow burn for the first couple of years because what I was trying to be careful of was, one, you know, convincing more people that what I'm doing is what they need to be doing. That took a lot of effort. But more importantly, I knew that what we were trying to do was so grand that if we grew it too quickly without really figuring out the fundamentals, we were going to be screwed. So, you know, I really spent the first three years laying a foundation, doing it with really no money, which forced me to do it manually. And I'd say like the pivot point of where I saw, okay, there's something quite large here was really in 2018 heading into 2019, where I met David Ide. Um, who's a partner and a board member with me in this company. He really believed in me and the vision. And you know, later that year into 2019, we formed the first board. And really the big shift occurred when I brought on my first salesperson and working together with that individual and then the second salesperson towards 19, seeing the growth occur through COVID was was incredible because we got to COVID and I said, well, we're going to slow down a lot. I guess this is the best thing in disguise because, you know, that year we went from 30-something to 75 customers, which was a big growth mark for us. And I said, maybe this will be good because we can slow down and figure out some of the fundamentals. And we tripled through COVID. And I think that was like the <laughs> aha, okay, wow. There's a bigger opportunity than I'm thinking here because a travel software platform just tripled when travel was dead. And that really highlighted the opportunity to connect communities to local businesses on the local level, in addition to on the visitor level. And that's really where it was, okay, we're sitting on a massive opportunity. And so through then, 2019, 2020, we raised an additional friends and family round to further validate our assumptions to maintain a high customer retention number to get us to 21. Well, let's peel that back a little, Mo, because I think that was you, you glossed over something that is kind of unbelievable. You tripled, you're a travel company. You're selling software to destination marketing organizations, you know, travel, travel industry. And you tripled during COVID. Do you think you're the, do you think any other company in your category tripled during COVID? Are you the, are you the only one? I think we're the unicorn in this case. You know, there was a lot of horror stories of travel companies in our space yeah. laying off massive workforces and really scaling back operations, having to raise additional capital. I think, you know, it's largely because of 
the deep-rooted nature of our company to always look for the opportunity and understand the adaptability of our software to solve a problem. And what you know, our team really did an incredible job of through 2020 was shifting the narrative around, hey, you're a tourism bureau. You're supposed to drive tourism in, but your local businesses need you more than ever. We have a software that can allow you to create local experiences. And that message really resonated. I think it was also the perfect storm because with that, with that, you had the CARES Act money. You had our brand presence had been building for years. We hired more salespeople at the beginning of 2020. There was sort of this perfect storm of events that happened that really enabled us to rapidly expand that year, which then led to a whole host of other challenges. <laughs> of course, the startup dilemma. It's like never-ending challenges uh, yep. with growth, right? Well, and 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 something special too that that I think you learned is just how applicable the software is more than just for tourism, but for building communities and supporting local businesses and supporting local communities. Any any fun kind of vignettes or stories about, you know, success stories related to to that during during yeah COVID? you know it's been really awesome because you know we're a full back office operational partner meaning we also take on the customer service for the end consumers that are using these experiences and passes it's been really great to see just the customer service that's come in for example we launched a travel iowa state park passport it was a check-in challenge in partnership with travel iowa and the department of natural resources to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the state park system so hearing customer feedback through COVID from our customer service line of people saying, this program has enabled me and my husband to hop on our motorcycle and go experience the great state of Iowa. People saying, thank you so much for releasing this program because we were bored like crazy in our home and this allowed us to get out into the market. And that coupled with, I'll never forget, you know, one of our clients launched a, a craft beverage program, a brewery program, a handful of months ago. And they had their annual meeting with the board. And I got a message from a contact from a board member that forwarded an email from one of the breweries that said, I don't know what you guys are doing, but it's working because we had the largest grossing Wednesday we've ever had in our brewery's history. And people were showing up left and right with these passes. So that to me is the most exciting That's part awesome. to say that we are actually having a direct impact on these small local businesses that largely before we we came into this market didn't really have a great way to market and sell and distribute their products online and it just makes me feel good that we're creating a solution that fills that void you know where a lot of the traditional mainstream tours and activities are largely served but we have a system that can work with you know these businesses that don't have a traditional online OTA style product so just mm -hmm. that community impact that's real you know we've sent out over 10 million dollars to local businesses now that's a real impact that we've had that we can attribute what we've done that just makes me really proud such such a cool niche how has how has now like how how are you posturing the company and and the opportunity for growth now i mean it seems like with all that you're doing you got to be attracting you know some attention from the the big the bigger otas the bigger travel companies any like third party integrations or anything going on there yeah you know one of the key use of proceeds in a lot of our last round was really two main focuses one was protect the asset that we have worked so hard to get our current customers. But then secondly, 
develop the software and the technology that enables us to, at scale, connect communities to local businesses. And one of the ways that we do that is through a new product offering that we released called DXE Connect. So we have now integrated directly into all the major third-party distribution channels. So the Groupons, the Viators, the Get Your Guides, the Tickets, the Klukes, the Amusement are able to now carry Bandwango products that our tourism bureau partners are creating when they're branded for a visit Salt Lake, for example. So mass market distribution is how uh, we're going to conquer the world in terms of our ability to really increase the customers that are sending into these doors. It really is this notion that collectively between our tourism bureau partners, between the OTA and the distributors, we can really significantly rise the tide. And I'm really positioning Bandwango to be at the at the you know at the center of that stuff of not only the system that can take the raw inventory, craft experiences, but then assist to get these things out to the mass markets. Awesome. What what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs that are, you know, maybe in New Jersey right now and want to get to Salt Lake or, you know, you name it, just somebody that's stuck in a PhD program, like any, any advice that you would give, give to those folks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, in terms of entrepreneurship, it's not always going to work. And you've got to be totally okay with that. And, you know, when I talked earlier about this notion of humility, it's not only the humility of realizing that you don't know everything, it's the humility of knowing when to pivot and when to do something different. The second thing I will say is is that as you grow your teams and as you prove out product market fit, entrepreneurship is not a single man sport. This company is not going to win or lose because of me. This company is going to win or lose because of our team. And it's really important early on to set that bar in terms of what you expect, not only from yourself, but from your team members. Because what I'm learning, and I learned this in some regards the hard way, I think a lot of people overlook the people component of business. I think a lot of first-time founders are really good operators, and they're really good at rolling up their sleeve and getting it done. The hard part is trusting that others can do it just as good as you can. And the hard part is building a tribal culture around you, because I think it's really hard to... Once you scale and raise money, it's really hard to really turn back the clock on the implications and what got you there today, meaning it's hard to turn back what got you there in terms of execution. And so I'd say, you know, focus on the fundamentals, but realize that as you scale and grow, if that's what you want to do, it's a team sport. Great advice. Anything on networking that you would say? Because I know you're, you're kind of a master networker, especially with um, these yeah. conferences you've been to. Yeah. I'm a really big proponent of perspectives are everything in life, both professionally and personally. I think that people get inspiration from different ways. Even us, you know, us getting to you, Les, happened through my network. It happened through tracing all the way back to 2011 through 2014. I was hot on the Salt Lake City entrepreneurial networking circuit. It was that circuit that led me to meet the person that introduced me to the individual, that introduced me to my other board member, that introduced me to a friends and family investor, that introduced me to you guys. And so everything happens for a reason. And you got to have at-bats. 
Because if you don't meet anybody, you basically minimize your opportunity to expand what you can do. Spot on. Spot on. Where Where is Bandwango headed? What's next? What's the future look like? Yeah, you know, the future for us looks like really enabling communities to support local businesses through the creation of experiences at scale. We are very much focused, one, on building absolutely a tribal culture of people that are very passionate about, about supporting local but then really investing in the tools and the technology where this can be done at scale, not in the thousands of communities, but in the hundreds of thousands of communities, and really building an ecosystem where Bandwango is present in communities and is known as the organization that's there to support local is where we're now aligning everything that we're doing to grow this business. Uh, We are doing it in a strategic manner because I do also say if we grow too quickly, sometimes that can be not a great idea. Because if you don't have a solid foundation, it's going to crumble. So short term, we're showing up the foundation. Long term, we're going to conquer the world and be the company that supports local through and through. <laughs> awesome. I love it. It's such a, such a great vision and strategy. And, and I have no doubt that you will continue to learn and, and continue to just you know knock down every obstacle in your way. So su- super And there's exciting. also no doubt that I'm going to continue to stumble. And I think it's important that everyone realizes that it's going to happen. There it is. Humility again. Mo, I got to thank you so much for being on the show. I I think your story is amazing. I think, you know, your approach, the culture that you have, your teammates. I mean, I think everybody would agree you're a special founder and, and not just in the Northern Rockies, but anywhere. So thanks for all that you do and all that you're doing on a daily basis. Could you tell our audience a little bit about where they can find you and Bandwango online? Yeah, absolutely. You can visit our website at bandwango.com. And then I'm always open to getting emails from anybody. You can reach me directly at mo, M-O, at bandwango.com, B-A-N-D-W-A-N-G-O. And then if Les wants, he can put out my cell phone number. I I love getting messages from people. <laughs> Look at that. Talk about an entrepreneur just throwing himself out there to the world. Even cell phone number. Nah, I don't think we'll do that, Mo. You got to focus. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Les. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to our podcast page at nextfrontiercapital.com to get links and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. We'll see you next time.